welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. Welcome in, everybody. This is our investing power hour that we do weekly. We've got a special guest this time, uh, recurring guest on the traditional podcast show. But for those on YouTube, you may not have seen him. His name is Paul Cerro. He's been on before. Um, I guess maybe do you want to give a little bit of an explainer on or like a welcome to me thing, like who you are for, <laughs> for the viewers? Yeah, um, sure. So I'm Paul Cerro. I technically hold a couple roles. Um, I'm the CEO of Cedar Grove Capital Holdings, which is um, the private side of small business acquisition slash investing, um, which also is the owner of uh, Cedar Grove Capital Management, where I'm the CIO, which is the multi-strategy investment fund, where we're focused on uh, long, short, uh, M&A arbitrage, and event-driven investments. Uh, based out of New York, and I've been on uh, Brett and Ryan's podcast a few times. Had some good conversations, um, but yeah, that's a little bit about me. And we just had a recent one talking about a small business. The first time you've purchased a small business outright, and we'll talk about that in a second. But I should have introduced Brett as well. We're joined by Brett again, uh, as always. Brett, do you want to kind of introduce our sponsor, our presenting sponsor for the episode? Yeah, that's right, and that was okay because I was tweeting out the link. Uh, so hopefully some people will start joining. Uh, yeah. So through the first three months of 2023, uh, our presenting sponsor is Stratosphere, uh, stratosphere.io. It is a great web-based terminal for fundamental researchers uh, like ourselves. We use it basically on every episode. I mean, I loaded up some stuff already this week uh, for the Power Hour and our Not So Deep Dive that we're recording tomorrow. One thing that I they're actually just updating on is the dashboard page. So that basically allows you to have multiple watch lists where I have our fund holdings on a certain watch list. Basically look at, you know, you have the companies listed like a standard watch list, but you can kind of toggle through the different columns and have what you want in there. So I have like daily change. uh, What are the next earnings? What's the free cash flow multiple? And then actually below it, which I haven't seen on really any other kind of new software program for investors is they have this aggregator for SEC filings, investor activity, KPI reports, and then you can change to different dashboards as well. So I also have my watch list, which will be uh, just different companies than ones that we don't own. And then it also has a news aggregator. So I can kind of look at each day, okay, I come to my watch list, I check it out. All right. I'm scrolling through right now. There's something about Microsoft with ChatGPT. Um, there's something about India antitrust with Google and Android. I'd probably read those. So yeah, and you can access all this stuff for free at stratosphere.io. Check them out in the show notes. We'll be using them basically on every episode uh, for the foreseeable future. All right, Ryan, let's get into it. Yeah, um, we've got a couple of news items, but I figure since we've got Paul on, uh, I kind of want to know... I've, I, we were talking about this before the show, but last time you came on, you talked about that small business that you purchased. And I've been perusing that site you recommended, just kind of envisioning all these small, being a small business owner. What has, it's been what, two months since you bought the business now? A month and a half. Yeah. Month and a half. All right. How, any findings to report? How's it been so far? Yeah. Which is something that I always knew, but, Again, I'm reiterating because I said it on my, uh, I said it on your podcast, is that uh, it's not for everybody. <laughs> it might, it might seem like you can do it. It might seem like you could do it, but there are a lot of a lot of things that, like once you once you're in it, like you have that that oh shit moment where you're like, hey, this is mine. All the liability is mine. Everything that happens to this thing is on me and solely me, unless you have partners. I don't know, but for me, it's just me. Um, so every decision that you make, all the money that you spend, all the money you invest, all the people that you hire, all the people that you fire, et cetera, is all on you. Um, so it's a very, it's a very real um, 
feeling as opposed to, you know, like you just owning a stock where, you know, your emotions are driven by it going up or down and, you know, you lose money on investment. Okay, cool. You walk away. Yeah. You can't do that in a small business. You can't just walk away unless you're, you're usually just, unless you're just going under. So it's very nerve wracking. Um, that's kind of like the biggest takeaway, but uh, it's I, you learn a lot. If you don't want to talk about, you ever hear those people who are like, why go get an MBA when you can just go become an entrepreneur and learn it the, like on hands way? It's basically what I'm getting. I'm getting a crash course in business building. Um, that's one step above just analyzing a you know an SEC report. Yeah, there's really no such thing as cutting your losses, I imagine. Um... How about the actual operations of it? Has it been more than you expected, less than you expected, or kind of? I imagine came in this came into this with a bit of a clean slate in terms of expectations. Yeah, I came in some. I came with a clean set of expectations, but I was kind of like hoping for the best. But you know, there's obviously things that pop up. You know, um, that are out of your control that like you just have to, you know, adapt to very quickly. Um, so. It's just, you know, since we just rolled up, it's not rolled up since we just like bought it up. Um, it's a lot of learning curves needing to, to reel in, but then also like, there's quite a lot of stuff that you have to learn, which is like kind of like every day or every other day seems to like be something new that you just have to address that, you know, you might've not been accustomed to. How would you say, would you say it takes up more time than you were expecting? Um, I think, I mean, yes, but I think it's like at first until I can kind of get a feel for exactly how things are going to be run and how I want them to be run. So I think there's just, I think there's just like that ramp up period um, that I just have to, you know, get used to. Yeah. Getting that new routine, all that, all that good stuff, but it's definitely, it's the complete opposite of just buying a stock, which I guess that leads into some of the topics today. Ryan, you assigned yourself, and I guess for any uh, new listeners, basically, we just come into here with a few topics, but we can also really talk about anything that comes to mind. Uh, but today, Ryan assigned himself maybe the hardest topic because there was no way I was going to try to figure out how this stuff actually works. And I'm sure we're going to miss something because this is an insanely complicated deal. But you have an update on the Breit, B-R-E-I-T, Blackstone Real Estate and Income Trust that's kind of in, I don't want to call it trouble, but there's some people complaining out there and they, they just raised money. But yeah, why don't you talk about that? Yeah, I gave myself plenty of notes here, and I'm, I'm staring down at my iPad for uh, for people that are actually watching, and they think, "What am I looking at?" But all my notes are down here. Um, so, Breit was the Blackstone Real Estate Income Trust. Last time, I think it was like four episodes ago. Uh, Brett, you talked about it, and they had, and it was announced that they were limiting. And this is a huge fund. This is one of Blackstone's biggest funds. I think it's. Marked at sixty-eight billion dollars. I'm not sure how exactly they're they're measuring that. I don't know if that's. I assume it's what they mark their assets at in total. Um, but so, so so it's huge, and it has probably some implications. But it's private, so it's got all private investors. There's no public marking for what their values at, and basically, what's been going on is that public REITs, I think, on average, dropped like twenty percent throughout 2022. Um, and then at the time, Breit, so the, the Blackstone one, said that they were up, I believe it was 8.4% net return through the first 11 months of 2022. So I think a lot of their investors were kind of calling maybe bullshit on um, the value of those assets because there's no public market quote. They can kind of value those assets at what they want or it's or the value of the fund is kind of whatever the last round they raised at. Um, and so a lot of investors were trying to withdraw and Breit limited the amount of withdrawals, which kind of concerned a lot of people. Um, but at the same time, there is some sense that, you know, the, it's real estate. They can't just get out of it automatically. You know, if you, if you own a, uh, like a literal toll bridge, it's hard. Like you can't just liquidate it automatically and give money back. So, you know, they sign in, they sign up for kind of lock-ins and the ability for them to withhold. Uh, withdrawals if they want to. So investors kind of knew what they were getting into. But anyway, this week, Breit announced a new $4 billion fundraising round from the University of California. However, they they did it at the current, what whatever they deem the current price of their common stock in that REIT. However, uh, 
Matt Levine did a really good job explaining this. They, they, it's, you give the right headline valuation, but then you give them all these extra benefits that most investors don't get. So in venture capital, they tend to call this structure. So like you'll get, you know, certain liquidation preferences if things go poorly, that kind of thing. In this case, uh, U- University of California received a guaranteed minimum annual net return of 11.25% over a six year holding period. So, um, and that's no matter how poorly Breed does. Yeah, I think there were some like, it was a really complicated transaction, but basically they got a guarantee that a lot of other investors didn't get. Um, sounds sounds pretty nice. Sounds like a good and good deal for them. Yeah, and part, it's literally Blackstone saying we'll give you a billion. Like they're putting one billion dollars of their own money into it. If you you know if the fund comes down and the assets are marked down, that kind of thing, Blackstone will basically just pay them off. However, the, the headline is they raise money at the current valuation, validating that the, the assets are worth as much as they say. Blackstone's president, John Gray, said, the deal is a massive affirmation of the quality of the portfolio we have constructed of the values of the assets here and the performance outlook. I, I want to take – Matt Levine does a really good job explaining this whole thing. And for for anyone that wants to – anyone interested in financial markets, I recommend reading his writing. But – he says UC Investments is buying a four billion dollars is buying four billion dollars of Breit common stock at the same price as Breit's other investors and with a six-ish year lockup. As a matter of headline valuation, UC is providing a massive affirmation of the value of the assets here. But Blackstone, which owns a bunch of Breit shares itself, is effectively kicking in a billion dollars of those shares to guarantee UC returns. Essentially, it seems like they've done this all for optics to give the sense that the assets are okay. I guess by like, is there any way? Do you buy what Blackstone's president is saying that their assets are just higher quality and that they haven't that they're worth more than all the public REITs assets? Uh, Paul, you want to go first or or me? I mean, I can. I mean, because like when it comes to this, um, like REITs aren't my bread and butter. I mean, I understand, I understand them conceptually and I understand like what, what's what's going on and like who's more or less got exposure where. I will admit, though, ever since I, I was familiar with even who Blackstone was back when I was back in my college days, they have a an amazing track record in the real estate game. Like I remember, like I think I got I think I got turned on to uh, Blackstone Real Estate when I found out that I forget exactly who it was. I think I think he's like the CEO of one of their arms now, but they bought like five billion dollars worth of real estate. And the and the great financial crisis, and then a few a few years later, I think it was like five years later, they they could flip it for like ten billion or something like that. And I was like, what? <laughs> um, so if they say that they're 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 reads of a higher quality, without without doing any other due diligence, I almost want to say that I kind of believe that just because their track record says it. Again, I'm not like I'm not going to take it at face value, but I do think that. There's some level of attribution you have to put on that level of, you know, expertise in that in that area for them. So there's there's that portion of that. Yeah, I think that. that, I was just gonna say, like, that's a good point, and it's uh, something that John Rotanti raised. He kind of he came on the podcast and pitched Blackstone recently, Um, and it's like like these guys aren't idiots. The people that are running this, uh, that are running Breed, like. They're probably really high quality analysts, really good investors, yada, yada, yada. Um, they know that falsely marking their the value of their assets, though it might get them fees this year or whatever, like those those Oh yeah, you just you can't just keep doing that. Like there yeah. there's there's a like <laughs> this isn't you know, the allegations against Trump and his like inflating, deflating his assets to avoid taxes. This is like you're giving investors money and you're charging them a fee. You can't just keep doing that. Like that's if you if you mark something up or you mark something down. Like and I think in this world, to get that level of capital, you better make damn sure that that is exactly where you're going to be leaving it for a bit, or yet you're confident in leaving it there for a bit. Because otherwise, again, it just hurts your track record, digs your credibility. You know, this is the domino effect after that. Yeah, and just for reference, I don't think anyone said it so far. They have seventy billion ish, I believe, maybe sixty billion 
in this one fund. So that's why it's such a big deal. What's yeah, their track record is amazing. And I think you have no reason not to trust them. But one, the incentives here are a little bit misaligned, I think, where they are kind of incentivized if someone wanted to be a little greedy, wanted to be a little, you know, okay, we, you know, we want to make sure we look good. They're, they are incentivized, I think. Well, that's Wall Street. To make the, that's just yeah. Wall Street. That's not, not so, an isolated thing. That's Wall Street. That's true. That's true. But this specific fund, I think, is like, just compared to all the other public REITs, I mean, maybe they're much better. Maybe that's true, but I, it'll be interesting to follow over the next few quarters or so because, again, I guess all, all of us aren't um, real estate. Like, or, or go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. I think it's hard to think that the problem is they have so much, and I don't know what all is in the, the REIT, like what their actual assets are, but they have so much that I have a hard time thinking they have that big of a discrepancy between their asset value and public REITs. Yeah. Eventually, uh, eventually like no matter how good of an an investor you are in real estate, interest rates are going to give you a headwind, right? I would think so. All right. But this, this, uh, I think some of the, some of the topic can get a little boring for investors. So I am going, or listeners, I'm going to give, a more controversial topic, which is my second topic, uh, Tesla delivery numbers. You called it, Brett. Well, you know, uh, blind squirrel finds it out once. I've been wrong on Tesla for, what, three years now? So I could be right for a little while. We also, we do have a comment in the chat. Happy New Year's, chaps. Quick snippet of each of your views on Airbnb currently. I'm hugely bullish and on the cusp of taking on a bigger position, but fear of further regulation keeps stopping me. Brett, let's, just, uh, let's hit what well, I don't know. What do, what do you want to hit first? I mean, I don't know. Tesla's, uh, I guess we can talk Tesla, but it's a little boring. You know, they missed. Yeah. They, they, it was kind of a wide miss. I think I'm pretty sure the number, like the estimates were 428,000 deliveries, which I don't know what deliveries that was, that was the top, means. That was the top of the range. That was the top of the range. <laughs> they that also, was. yeah, they also massage it by telling kind of analysts what they're expecting. So, they always get really close. So this is kind of a surprise because it was the one time it was down so much farther than what they had kind of told the analysts uh, what it was going to be. Yeah, it came in, I think it was like 405,000 came in at. Uh, is the bottom of the range is I think, I think it was either 409 or 411. That was the bottom of the range. And so they were even yeah. below the bottom of the range. Yep. Damn And they had a $7,500 discount right at the end of the corridor so on their yeah but, on, but did you hear that did you see the problems with that though on the uh on the tesla forums no what no what well, yeah go so ahead so the thing is you only got that credit or that discount quote unquote is if that delivery was made before the end of the year and i mean i mean like literally december 31st 11 59 p.m because there was so many issues um with deliveries you know with the weather chaos everywhere there were so many tesla purchasers who got the tesla because of that discount right but because through no fault of their own they didn't get the delivery uh before the end of the year then tesla then reached out to them saying hey you didn't you didn't get the delivery before the end of the year you actually don't qualify for the 7500 discount we need you to basically put in additional cash to meet the um the foregone <laughs> money that they would have, would have they got capital called them. they got cap right, i mean the more right like, yeah, but they're, they're no fault of their own because i mean yeah. like until the truck drive truck driver to deliver their car it's just like they just couldn't so now so many of them in the forum was just like did anyone else get an, uh get reached out to by tesla demanding more money in order for for delivery like this is like bs blah 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 like it's not my problem how can they do this? I hate Tesla now, blah, 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 blah. But it was, it was uh, a shitstorm at that. They have a habit of treating their customers poorly and they just keep coming back. I mean, this is not surprising. This is the type of move they do all the time, but the brand is, uh, oh, it's, it's rapidly it's, deteriorating. Rapidly. Yeah, it, it, ha- it has been very bulletproof, whatever Teflon, whatever you want to say. But yes, I agree with you, Paul, right now. Bulletproof. Yeah. I mean, yeah. like, don't get me wrong, Tesla was the first stock I ever bought in my life. Literally, I bought it in January of 
2014. Yeah, January of 2014. And I think the pre, I'm sorry, the post split price adjusted was like $11 or something. Like that. No, actually, no, it's even worse now because he did another split. I'm sorry, it's even better now because he did another split. It's probably like six bucks or something. But reality catches up and you just keep seeing all the, I didn't realize how bad the, uh, the, um, the repairs and aftermarket parts uh, oh. like a problem that was like that that's yeah. that's a clusterfuck are you kidding I, I if any nobody actually i take that back people when they buy like fords and they buy like gms can expect to have like a hassle with getting their cars fixed but there's plenty of dealerships to go to to get them fixed you can't do that with tesla right only tesla can only tesla uh or tesla proof places can actually fix teslas and the customer service of addressing that is piss poor and yet people still come back to them but there are plenty of who are just like you know what i'm out like give me that give me something else it's going to be an interesting 2023 for them i just saw they revised their contract with one of their i think it was lithium one of their commodity providers and it was based on the instead of some they had like a, a fixed rate back that they did in i think 2019 2020 when the lithium price was about three times lower than it was today now it's going to be based on the rolling market price. So I, I just think their costs are going to go up a ton. Uh, but we don't have to talk about Air, uh, excuse me, Tesla all day. We have this question from Mark. I believe that might be, that could be your pseudonym. Uh, says he is hugely bullish on Airbnb. What are your thoughts on the company? Um, Paul, do you follow this at all? I know we follow it fairly closely. It's, it's on the watch list, but interested to hear your thoughts. Yeah, honestly, I use Airbnb. I, I actually managed for a time my parents' Airbnb um, nice. when you know they were trying to make some extra money. Um, it's a great, it's a great service. The way they've evolved over time has been excellent. I'm not gonna lie to you. When 2020 rolled around, I'm like, oh god, these guys are dead, <laughs> you know. Um, and then we were all pleasantly surprised because then everybody decided to just like leave their home and then plant their flag elsewhere for the time being. Obviously, they're paying money for it. My issue with Airbnb is that the, if you look at the, um, I guess, housing supply issues going on in the country right now, it really gets, the problem exacerbates itself because of all the people who are invested in real estate, not just like as a rental properties or second homes, third homes, like whatever, um, even from these big funds, okay, Blackstone, but you have people who have like bought these bought homes to rent specifically just on Airbnb, right? And it's funny because I remember seeing one picture on Twitter and it was, I forget who it was from. So I'm sorry if you're listening to this and I didn't quote you, but he showed a picture of the housing crisis in uh, New Orleans, Louisiana. And like how many homes like deficit there was in, because people, there's just not, there's just not enough homes uh, for people. And then he shows a side-by-side of the exact same map um, of an area where it's like on Zillow for sale. And then another map where it's the same location of Airbnb listings. And it just like, this thing just lights up. It's like, oh, it's all those little pin drops. And my problem with it is that it it's making a housing crisis worse because everybody wants to like, it's not just people who are renting out their current place. It's people who are just keep buying more places to rent out those places. Um, and I know years ago, urban and urban cities like my city, New York City, fought back on Airbnb saying like, you know what, like, you know, you're a short stay, like we, we thrive on hotels here, blah, 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 blah. If your Airbnb is less than 30 days, you can't do it. It has to be at least 30 days. Um, and that basically shut down like tons of people. I mean, illegal operations still pop up all the time. But um, my problem with them is like, I don't know if there's a point where government policy is just like, you got to fix this somehow because you're just making the problem worse. That's my biggest concern with them. Um, as far as like pricing action right now or valuation, I don't really keep up with it that much. It's more so like the underlying problem of what business it's running and what type of situation the, uh, the American like housing system is, um, is in right now. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, we had a comment here, another probably anecdote that a lot of people have where they were staying at a house and the, some of the other people that lived there had been there for like over a year. I assume he's saying he's on Airbnb. The long-term stays has been a big change. I think there is a dynamic there that it's un, 
it happened so quickly that I think some of the things coming out of that are it's TBD. And I really worry here. Here's one thing I'm going to share my screen uh, that has a, uh, again, uh, using Stratosphere that has a great KPI that I think highlights this point over the last few years. Um, and it is the average daily rate on the platform. Can you guys see that? Yeah. Yes. So if we look really, the average daily rate is just what, you know, a night costs at a, at an Airbnb place on average. So some are going to be a lot more, some are going to be a lot less. If we look at kind of the 2015 to 2019 period and right, you know, at the beginning of COVID, I guess the average daily rate was stable at about a hundred and well, we, what are we at here? About 110 to 120. But the last two years, it has jumped up to $160, which has been a huge accelerant to Airbnb's revenue growth. And I just worry that if we normalize back, because I, I don't know why this happened, frankly, and maybe it's some of the reasons you outlined, Paul, but if that normalizes back, that's going to really hurt the revenue in the short run. So I think just from my view, I like the business model. I think they have a really great track record. They have great brand value. They have some key competitive advantages, but right now it remains on the watch list just because I, I the near term, I, I am very concerned about it. Should it long-term stays like hurt that more than help it too? Cause it, it'll be like a lower average daily rate. Yes. Good point. They typically, um, as I've done longer term stays before the typically people will do a 20%, 30% discount for uh, longer term stays. Having, having been a manager of an Airbnb listing, we actually wanted the longer stays <laughs> because when you think about it, stable cash flow at that point. And it's it actually it's actually really interesting because when my parents were doing it, the people who mainly stayed at their listing, which was their home, um, it was families who had just sold their homes and they were basically in the middle of transitioning to their new home that they purchased. So they just needed a, a place to basically bridge that gap between, hey, we sold our home. We haven't, we can't, we can't move into our home yet. There's that. And then you had a lot of people who came in and were like, hey, I'm just like in town to see some family real quick or for a conference or like whatever. And you had like those type of people. When you look at the, the KPI that you just showed on Stratosphere, it I think it's a factor of two things. Um, one, yeah, I mean, you just had to help the supply and demand just explode. Like that's like honestly like one of the biggest things. And if I know you guys have heard me tell about this a lot, um, but you know, I'm thinking of there's a huge consumer slowdown back to pre-19 levels. So I'm expecting things to renormalize back to pre-19 eventually after it overshoots to a downside. So if my hypothesis is correct, it's like, all right, well, that supply demand issue will normalize as people like are like, okay, hey, I've traveled enough after COVID. I can like cool it down now. I don't know when that's gonna be. Right, because a lot of consumer spending has shifted from goods to services and travel experiences, which is Airbnb's domain. The other part of this, which I know you've probably seen, is everybody getting angry about the cleaning fees. And again, as a manager of one, uh, yes, as soon as I found out that I could get basically better margins on my cleaning fee if I charge it, I would make it more expensive because I could get to capture more more margin for my parents. Um, by charging that. So it wasn't ridiculous. Don't get me wrong. I'm not like charging a stupid amount of money, but it was like, Hey, I could actually squeeze out an extra, like, you know, depending on the stay, like 30, 40, 50 bucks per person. Like, yeah. You know? Um, but then people have rioted because, you know, like they're saying like, you know, you, you search for an Airbnb, it says $200 a night, but then you price everything out and it's like 400 because of cleaning fees and taxes, you know? Yeah. Um, and um, I think it's a combination of those two things. The ability to, manipulate your listing to juice your sales and then also just pure supply demand shock. Yeah. At the same time, I, I do see a world where I, I think it's very like I think it's very easy to just envision a world where Airbnb is much bigger in five to ten years. I know it's like kind of a boring thesis to go off of, but it seems like I mean it's, it's not because at that point it's like what 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 multiple are you paying for it then? If you think you can yeah. just continuously grow, what, what multiple are you going to pay? Yeah. What are you going to underwrite? Yeah, I just, the two things I'm looking at is one, that ADR, the average daily rate. I, I'm just very nervous about that. If I was looking at them, you just, you could say, okay, maybe they're fairly cheap ish on their current multiple versus the growth you expect over the long term. 
And then second, I think these are, when you talk about the consumer stuff, you reminded me, Paul, I believe you've been tweeting about this or sharing stuff about that. And a lot of people have shared this chart is the consumer savings rate went from 30% down to 2%. And we talked about this once on the show. And that doesn't mean people are going to have negative savings because they did pile up some stuff. But eventually, or I guess what the 2% means right now is that there is just a ton of, and I know everyone hates using this term, dry powder in consumers' pockets that is coming out right now, right? And I just I wonder what, what that's going to look like. I think that does play into your thesis, I'm assuming, Paul, for the consumer slowdown in well, 2023. Actually, did you see the, the one that I posted today? Actually, let me pull it up. Um, uh, it was... Wait, am I on mute? No, no, okay. Um, it was about... Um, Consumer spending, but basically uh, how how they've tapped into credit, and it's on Bloomberg. If I can find it, um, because my my whole thing I've been reiterating, and I, I'm probably a broken um, record at this point, is that yes, the consumer saving rate went down. Um, uh, it's basically at zero. It's, it's basically at zero right now. Yeah. Uh, well, well, it's like well, it actually went up. From October to November, it went, oh, it went from like 2.4 to 2.5. Marginally, it's like almost um, completely irrelevant. Uh, but um, and let me share my screen with you. Uh, that's right. And uh, Paul, make sure to uh, describe what you're looking at, too, for people that are listening in the podcast format. Oh, right. Yes. Yeah. So we're looking at a chart um, posted on, on Bloomberg. And it's uh, it's titled "Households Are Feeling Pinched" and that more Americans are relying on money outside of their regular income sources to meet spending needs in the past week. And it's basically a line chart of three different uh, data series. One of them being a, a growth rate for the percent of um, uh, credit cards or loans being used to spend money, and one is being used. Uh, one is uh, that money is from savings or selling of assets. So the savings is, you know, obviously what people um, got during COVID. You know, since they weren't going anywhere. And then the last line, the third line, is being able to borrow from friends and family. And all of these lines are basically going up and to the right as of April twenty twenty one. However, what is recent uh, is that the lines have started to diverge um, in twenty twenty two and late twenty twenty two. And what I mean by diverging is that the the rate, or sorry, the line for um, consume Americans using credit cards or loans has shot up, and the uh, the line for being able to use your money from your savings or selling of assets has gone down. It's actually it's um, it's inverted. And um, pulling a quote from the from the article for people who are listening and, and can't see, um, it says new data released Thursday. In the U.S. Census Bureau's household poll survey, found that more than 35% of households used credit cards or loans in December to cover spending needs in the past week. That's up from about 32% in November and just 21% in April of 2021. And that's that's when they first started tracking the data. Um, so this kind of fits into that that narrative of which I've been saying for so long. One day Americans are going to wake up. And they're going to be like, oh, crap, I've actually spent way too much. This is not sustainable. I need to dial it back. And if you look at the savings rates that we all that we all reference from Fred, um, which I can actually pull up right now, actually, it'd probably be beneficial, is that if you look at um, savings rate now, oh, this is the one I was forget exactly which one it is. Yeah, it's this one. So again, describing it to you, if you look at what it is now, it is... Uh, November was at 2.4%. October was at 2.2%. So that's what I meant by I went up marginally, 2.2 to 2.4. The only time it was less than that was July of 2005, which is the lowest on record. Well, wow. 2.1%. Uh, yeah. What a, you know, that's a, tough, tough, that's a tough comp there, July 2005. True. But what's interesting is that right now we're looking at a slight uptick. Will this trend maintain? Who knows? But what's interesting yeah. is if you look at 2005, when it bottomed at 2.1, the savings rate started climbing and climbing and climbing just until 2008 when, you know, everything went to shit. 
And then savings rates spiked because everybody thought the world was going to collapse and they didn't want to spend anything on it, spend any money on anything. So it's like, could we kind of see a reiteration of this if it gets bad enough? Like, are people going to be like, okay, can't spend, dial it back, saving only, eggs are too expensive. You know what I'm saying? So it's a, it's a nice, it's a nice um, data point to reference. I don't know if it's going to be true or not, but it's just, it was interesting to me. Yeah. And just for anyone that, I don't know, can't see it or just kind of doesn't know what the average savings rate is. In the United States, it's covered typically around 5 to 10%. And yeah, there's periods where it goes a little higher, a little lower. But during COVID, it shot up to 30%, especially with the stimulus stuff and everyone you know at home. And then it kind of trickled down and now it's way below the trend. So yeah, it's interesting. Um, we do have a lot of comments. Favre uh, says, Paul, you're an Airbnb baron. Yeah, you, you're the... Uh, the, yeah. the masquerading the uh the cleaning costs the worst but uh you gotta do it i guess it's called it's called capitalism okay i'm I'm, I'm wall street of course i'm gonna find a way to make a buck like come on let's be real (laughs) uh bijan says or bijan says hey guys cloud episode that you just released with sean was great lots of good information yeah i I thought i kind of actually listened back to that this morning and i don't re-listen to every episode but that one i i think probably because i don't I have such a like kind of peripheral grasp of of cloud. It was so nice to get his takes, and he explained it in such like a non technical way that it was easy to digest. Um, and not to mention, we've been looking at Microsoft all day because we we're, we're doing a not so deep dive on them. I can't help but think those those if you took Google Cloud. AWS and Azure independently, they're going to be much bigger businesses in five years. I, I like it. I think I can say that was confidence and you can just look at the backlogs and see that. At this point, maybe maybe not Google, but for Microsoft and, Ada, or, and Amazon, I think that drives the performance of the overall businesses as well. A hundred percent. Not to spoil the Microsoft one, but I was looking at kind of you know future growth opportunities. I was like, hey, LinkedIn, you know, it's a lot bigger than I thought, but for the size of Microsoft, it's still uh, quite irrelevant. Um, yeah, all right. Any new topic? The big thing this week that I had, I didn't have any big, like, comprehensive thing that, like Ryan mentioned, but I got one here, and it is Amazon laying off 18,000 employees. There was a letter from Jassy. I don't think there was really anything else besides they were just laying off 18,000 people. Actually, let me confirm where it is. It's going to be in their people experience and technology experience organization devices and books and i think physical stores although i'm trying to read this in real time anyways any thoughts on those guys uh i think they basically doubled it from what people were rumored as in uh november it's all corporate right it's all 10 retail it's retail and i think on something else I think yeah, yeah, yeah. Retail might, but but yes, it's not it's not warehouse uh, workers, Brian, because those fluctuate all the time. I mean, they're going to decrease it by uh, probably a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand people after the holiday season. So yeah, I saw people quoting that. That's that's not that's not like unexpected. It's um, that's a part of doing business, right? That's like it's like well, what's interesting is the opposite of that, right? That was when FedEx actually said, "Hey, we're actually not going to be that busy this." This holiday season, but but to the Amazon point, I think there's more to come. I mean, um, have you ever read Howard Schultz' book on Starbucks? I have not, but I I, I probably should. It seems like a good one. Um, I didn't like it, but there was something really? that was, okay. Yeah, I, I thought it was a huge, just like it was basically an ad campaign for Starbucks. But uh, it was like long, that, exactly like Bob Iger's, huh? Just like, yeah, it sounds like Bob Iger's book. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Bob Iger, him too. He's gonna like stroke his own ego. But the interesting part in Howard Schultz's book is like when when Starbucks was under pressure back in the housing crisis, right? They they didn't want to lay off people, but they knew they had to. So they did one round of layoffs, thinking that that was enough. But then later on, they realized that it wasn't enough, and they had to do another round of layoffs. And his takeaway in that chapter was basically like, hey, if you're if you're looking at if you're running or analyzing a company, you got to make sure that when you do layoffs, that you do them sizably hard at once so that you don't have to keep doing it and doing it and doing it because you just keep a you get a bad taste in your employees now its morale goes straight through the ground and that it's like basically all the consequences that go around with it so when amazon towards the end of last year is like hey now we'll, we'll do ten thousand, and now they're doubling it 
I think it's because they've came to the reality like, hey, we, if we're gonna if we're gonna do if we're gonna do this again, we need to make sure that it's going to be like the last time or one of the last times in case it gets even worse. Because otherwise, you got you just keep getting lines of fucking problems when um uh you know shit hits the fan and uh, he didn't do enough. You know. Yeah. What, yeah, what would that, you guys or go it, ahead, Ryan? I well also the bill. Bill in the comment says, considering they have one and a half million employees, it's not much to them. That figure that you're quoting includes warehouse workers. Yeah, it's, it's, it's irrelevant. Yeah. It's which these are significantly higher comp packages. So it'll have a it'll have a bigger incre- impact on operating expenses. But it's also, I think it was like five, a little more than five percent of corporate employees. Yeah, um, I heard I heard they have three hundred thousand, I think, corporate employees, which I was kind of shocked at. But it raises a good point. And it raises the the next point that you're going to talk about, which is at this. And so this was like a tweet. Someone said, Amazon's joining Salesforce today and laying off staff. Every single tech company has the air cover for layoffs. Even if they're not needed, it's a free pass to restructure and clear out bottom performers. Expect layoffs to accelerate. I think that's like, I guess uh-huh. Amazon's Amazon's kind of in a precarious spot because of the cash flow in retail, but uh do they need this? No, but it's a maybe not, but it's like a perfect time to do it because you have the excuse to just say, well, it's recession. I mean, they're not like Uber or, or something like that where they were structurally unprofitable, but there's no reason to just hire people to hire people. And I just I get really irked when they're like, when companies are like, we need to hire to scale up. And it's like, no, you got to hire if you have jobs for it. Here's, here's one question, just so we can kind of do a little math here. What do you guys think the total cost Salary plus company expenses plus office plus whatever plus transportation for each of these corporate employees would average out to two three hundred k a year two hundred fifty k a year. What 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 do you guys think? At Amazon or at what? Amazon at Amazon. Amazon, I'd probably go. I don't even have a number. Three hundred. This is like Yeah, I mean, I feel like yeah, three hundred. Okay, well, let's use let's use three hundred. Um, why can't I type in this calculator? Salaries alone, I mean, I was seeing a stat yesterday. I mean, salaries alone are like, what, 200, 250? You have to remember yeah. their options are, I think Amazon does RSUs. So it's, they're just, they're just given, you know? Yeah, I think, yeah, assuming, you know, there's all these variables. Um, assuming it's $300,000 a year, it's $5.4 billion in saved compensation. So pretty meaningful. I mean, and, and they, well, I don't hang want to on, say definitely. On, they it have saved to... compensation, but you still have to you still have, you still take a hit to your income statement on yeah. severance. So it's exactly. short term. Short it, 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 it doesn't net out though. You know what I'm saying? Like because you, you pay like when I saw Facebook severance package, I was like, oh my god, I'll I'll oh, go get very... off by I'll go get off by Meta <laughs> if that's the case. I'll have, I'll have to work for like two years. So it depends on how well Amazon severance package is. Because if it's like a I, uh, well one, supersedes that. Yeah. The. Uh... I actually have a friend at Amazon who said uh, that they're offering, I forget what it was, five months, six months of- Sounds more attractive to to, to voluntarily quit than That's what I'm saying, yeah. They they offered five, six months, I think, of the same exact pay and benefits to voluntarily quit. But either way, over the long term, they should realize these savings. Um, Yeah, it's not next year, it's actually going to look probably just the same, or at least the next few quarters. Uh, but yeah, Matt H. Matt H. asks about uh, synergies of Microsoft with OpenAI. Thoughts or insights on these developments? I'm honestly not super familiar. Doing well, do here's everything. Here's before I moved to Microsoft. I had one. I, I came up with uh, this chart on Stratosphere that I wanted to show you guys. Do you guys think? And this might be a leading question, so I don't know if you're gonna. Uh, I hopefully keep it. You know, whatever. You guys won't figure it out. But do you guys think? Per year, Amazon's SGNA expenses or R and D expenses are a higher nominal value. Then I'll share the the chart after this. Wait, what was the beginning part? Oh, so sorry. on an the annual uh, expenses, I'm explaining this wrong. Do you think it's SGNA expenses are a bigger dollar value or R and D expenses are a bigger dollar value? You mean historically? Uh, last twelve months, but historically, oh. this number, whatever one's higher, has always been higher. Oh, SGNA, 100%. I would guess. I would guess SGNA. All right. I was hoping you guys would go with your gut there because it is not. Let me share. What? Let's look at this chart here. 
Look That's at that R and D spend. Look at that R and D spend. We got uh your screens are there. What is that? 70? Oh wait, we can pop it up here. 68 Seven, billion yeah. in R and D spend per year and 51 billion in SGNA. They're working on some projects over there, guys. Well, um, I wonder if the ramp up is from Amazon Studios. Yeah, I wonder how that's classified. Yes, yeah, as as well. But I mean, they, what do they got? They got, they got a self driving car division. They got, I mean, they got all these R and D divisions that just have so many employees. And again, that's at Stratosphere.io. You can look at uh, the links in the show notes. Check them out. But yeah, I was shocked when I saw that, and I wanted to save it to have on this episode. Okay, this might be a dumb question, but what is OpenAI? Is that that's the a, Chat GPT the, shit? Stuff? The, yeah, the language learning mo- models. Yeah. So yeah, what, that was interesting. I thought Microsoft was basically was originally trying to do that with Cortana. Mm, yeah, don't forget, never forget Cortana. Yeah, there forget Cortana. Yeah. <laughs> ChatGPTs run on Azure, right? That's the only thing I know. Yep, and I believe Microsoft has invested a uh, billion dollars in the company OpenAI that runs it. General thoughts on ChatGPT? Does it kill Google? Paul, you go first. We already, already <laughs> talked. We already talked about this. No, I've played around. I played around with it. I mean, it's cool. I think the, the biggest takeaway is that it makes you sound smart without actually providing the exact details that you need to actually be correct. That's why Fintwit loves it. Yeah, it's a great response. I imagine to like, uh, like unnecessary emails, or I know a lot of people were doing it for school assignments. That seems like the perfect market to go after. Yeah, but now they're. I just read an article. Like I think like some some high school in New York City, or college in New York City, or something. Something in New York City now blocks it on their computers, on the school's computers. So if you try to go on, you can't. It doesn't work. Yeah. What's yeah? Yeah. ChatGPT makes life difficult for teachers. That's what Bill said. Yeah. I I've heard some serious complaints. They're like, I mean, I, there was one teacher on. I can't remember what forum. And he's like, this no, is. Yeah, he's like this. I mean, this is ridiculous. This student's been underperforming all semester, and he just turned in a perfect essay yep. with with like grammar that he hasn't used all semester. And I ran it through the plagiarism whatever detector, and it's not yep. coming up. <laughs> yep. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, yeah, but that that's not that has nothing to do with Google. <laughs> it's just, you know, I don't know why people always go on Google. I remember uh, this week, and I wasn't there on Twitter at all are really in, you know, the investing world hard at this point, but during the voice technology, I want to call it hype cycle, not really a bubble, maybe a hype cycle 2016. Everyone said that Alexa was going to kill Google. And <laughs> I think it that might kill Amazon. <laughs> yeah. It might kill Amazon out of those R and D expense chart. We just saw. Um, but here's, here's a good, another good tweet. I saw is that open AI thing. If it's a, some, some, Someone on Twitter said it reminds them of the 3D printing craze, which I remember. People, I w- I'd be on some like road trip or something, and someone's like, "Have you ever heard of 3D printing? It's going to take over the world. You're going to print all your materials in your house." And I think this kind of reminds me of this sort of same sort of hype cycle, where it's just that's with a lot of new things that didn't take to feel like 3D printing. Totally understand where that guy's coming from. The cannabis craze, totally get where they're coming from. AI, totally get where they're coming from. All this Web three. I don't even know what the hell Web3 is, but people are crazy with Web3. Look what's happened, I think. Um, all, all that stuff. And if you look at um, one thing I've always loved about these speculative like calls on like, do you think you should acquire them or whatever? It's, can you yourself even think about what they're going to use it for? Because I can't. The, the, the language learning mod, mod, excuse, excuse me, models. Yeah, the... why we can't, I have all the, all of the, trillions or gajillions of data that Google has, you really don't think that they could just do that themselves if they actually wanted to? Yeah, I, I see this similar to voice technology. It's kind of a commodity for big tech. And what's going to matter is the distribution to consumers. And Google has dominated with one of the best modes in existence for that. And we have a comment here. Yeah, we didn't really... They, the, the rumor was that chat GPT is going to get embedded into Bing, which I think people were worried about. I wouldn't be worried about that because Google could already embed theirs into Google and they're choosing not to just because of the computational costs. I don't see how it, it's really concerned unless Microsoft wants to get some better Azure numbers out it there. Is, yeah, it is great for Azure. Everything leads back to, you know, the, the all these consumer like uh, conversations, 
are very difficult. And then if you just say, all right, well, in the end, it's just going to benefit Azure, GCP, and AWS, and they're going to be fine. I saw a stat or something this week, and this is totally random, but I could, I might be botching this, but who do you think AWS's biggest customer is? I would say Netflix. I'm pretty sure it's Axon. Axon. Oh, you know, I think you're right. I actually think you're right. Yeah. I, I, thought, they, I thought they went to, I thought I used to follow that company. I thought they transitioned to Azure or did they transition to AWS? They transitioned to one when I was reading it. They had a big expense for that. I can't remember, but I remember seeing that uh, whoever it was, was uh, whichever cloud provider it was, Axon required more compute or storage or paid AWS or Azure more than Netflix, which shocked me. Okay, yeah, let me try to find it. The, uh, I guess it's all that evidence.com. And you know what? That honestly makes me a little more uh, optimistic about like Axon. Yeah, if they didn't have that crazy SPC stuff, stock-based comp, um, yeah, I'd be very interested. Business I read the, read their most recent proxy, and they are fixing that to some extent. Good, but it was so bad. We don't need to get the details here, but it was it was terrible. Yeah, I can't find the details, but that does sound correct. I mean, they spend a lot on the cloud. Yeah, it's all just, right. That, all right. Anyway, uh, any other? Yeah, I see topics, the Ma- you see the Madoff documentary on Netflix. Anyone? No. Oh, I want to see that. It's uh, it came out yesterday. I watched the first episode. Pretty good. I think I'd recommend it for any financial person. They had some pretty funny things in there too, where. One, it reminds me a lot of the frauds that are going on today, but there's just these examples of they were talking about who worked there and all the connections of who worked at whatever Madoff Securities. And I I laughed so hard when they said, and you have his compliance officer, his brother, Petey. And I was like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, you got your brother as the compliance officer. I mean, if anything, if if you had a board of directors, if you got compliance, anything regulatory, right? And that's their specific role is that's their job for especially a big, a big company, right? That has thousands of, or I don't know, dozens of employees. The one rule is don't make it a family member because people are going to get suspicious. What? Even if they're they're honest, right? You just don't make it a family member. You can't do that. I think I remember watching one of the, there was a Madoff movie, either it was on HBO or. Wizard of Lies. Wizard of Lies, HBO. Yeah. Uh, and they made it seem like Madoff did this all on his own in the documentary. Like oh, he kept it away from his brothers. Yeah, or excuse yeah. me, his because uh, he had a that was at his, no, his brother, his brother. Uh, his brother and his, and his son uh, and, and his, his sons. sons. Yeah, his sons. Yeah, and he was just like on a, Like, do you think what were their sons? Do- what were they doing? No, there's two different companies. There was a legit company and a. Uh, the illegal one they're on different floors of the building so yeah they were, the, they were the, market, yeah. market making they were market he just making. kept he basically kept them just you're not allowed at all to come in this other floor and he just has his real sketchy people down on that other floor doing his doing his dirty work with the fraud yeah there's also someone that apparently he would have been celebrated in 2022 <laughs> oh yeah well he reminds me exactly like the the tactics the whatever is happening like on the kind of what the public saw reminds me exactly of tether of what's going on with them right now the same sort of stuff but that's a, that's a whole other topic who do you think's the if you had to pick someone to run your fraud between madoff sbf oh madoff 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 he lasted 60 years SPF lasted three. He did Madoff. not last 60. He, he, yeah, he ran did. the thing for 60 years. It was a fraud for, uh, nope, not 60. I was no, going 60 no, no, today, no. uh, 45 years. I was going until today. So that's like, crazy. It started in, at least according to the documentary, that it's started in, I think, 1970, something like that. Maybe earlier. Wow. But it started really small, really, really. That's small. crazy. Do you yeah. think it started as like a genuine operation, or do you think it started as a fraud? Well, the, no, it, was a gen- the, it was a genuine operation. Yeah, the, the, the market, the, the market making was genuine, 
And then he had this thing that no one knew about but him, but him and his other jabronis that he would never share about his uh, investment fund or his hedge fund. And it would be, uh, it started out with a little bit of money and it, it was a fraud. And it was actually founded as a penny stock brokerage or manager management. Manager yeah, that was, that, that was their, um, that was their legitimate business, right? That was a legitimate one. Yeah. Yeah. What's the, uh, what's the documentary called? I think it's just called Madoff on Netflix, something like that. You'll find it. All right. I know what I will be watching tonight. Any, uh, <laughs> any other uh, topics, Brett? Let's see. I hope I didn't. Wait. You said TikTok's losing market share. Yeah, let's, let's hit that one. Let's see what this tweet says. Okay, here's a tweet. Gavin Baker. One, time spent for almost every major social network has accelerated through November from a summer trough, and most are now growing faster than TikTok. TikTok time spent has been negative year over year for five months this year, including November. Thoughts on this, guys? I don't know if it's a huge deal. Um, Look what what you're comping against, though. Yeah. it's. I think we'd have to see it for multiple quarters, at least. There, uh, I will just anecdotally, I am seeing a lot of like friends migrate to reels and YouTube shorts and spending more time on there. And yeah, I mean, we've seen numbers from YouTube. I think was it reels or YouTube shorts where they gave commentary on the call. Uh, I know Zuckerberg said they they were seeing a lot of time spent on, on reels, but I want to be surprised if. Uh, at least at the margins, some of those other competing offerings are, are carving into market share for TikTok. Yeah, there's also an interesting chart from uh, what is it, Morgan Stanley? It's TikTok estimated total time spent in the U.S. in billions of minutes, and it's it shot up basically like a rocket into really like Q4 of uh, 2021, and since then it's been flat which isn't like bad for them, but it's just not the same. They're not growing anymore. <laughs> Matt H in the comment says, I mean, I'm a millennial, but I judge anyone who actively uses TikTok with great prejudice. I, I, I couldn't agree more. I, <laughs> I just, it, is a, it is a brain melter. It is, it's one of those, remember we talked about this theory before of how the better the apps are at addicting you, the shorter the lifespan is because it just gets you uh, burned out quicker. I yeah, think that, I think that's got to be. Look, I've never used it, but I think it's got, that could be the case. Although I've been just wasting an absurd amount of time on Twitter for a while now, I haven't really. Oh, that's God, I, need cut, I need to cut back myself. Yeah, I think I I don't have it on the phone anymore. Just to, <laughs> but desktop only while I'm working. Uh, but I, I think there is some validity to that. Like, it's it's the the worry of addiction. Like I, I hear. People are trying to, I, I know people that try to go cold turkey on TikTok. They're like, nope, I'm not doing like, I'm not limiting myself to an hour a day. I'm just like, I got to delete the app, got to get completely off of it because it's kind of, it's just like a make or break. Like they're either on it or they have to like get off it entirely. So I, I, I do think some people kind of treat it like an addiction where if you make your product too, too sticky, it's kind of a double-edged sword. Yeah. Anyway, we got it's two impossible. Left. Yeah, it's it's. I I think it's an impossible question to answer. All right, closing thoughts, Paul. What's your bold financial prediction for twenty twenty three? Soft Ooh. landing. Um, I don't think it's soft landing. <laughs> um, I actually made some predictions. Actually, I put it in, I put it in the quarterly letter. One of them was that Bank Bed Bath and Beyond was going to go bankrupt. So I guess I can really chalk that one. There we go. Five days into the new year. Um, I was I was thinking it could go bankrupt by like the end of the year, so I'm like, oh, it'll just go bankrupt sometime in this year, and then yeah, there you go. Um, I have Bitcoin is going to be breaking below. I'm not a crypto enthusiast, just for the record. Anybody listening to this, I have never bought it, but I think Bitcoin is actually going to be breaking um, uh, twelve thousand this year, and that's just basically a run on a run on any other crypto assets left, not only to avoid all these bankruptcies that are happening, but then also to like shore up their cash reserves because of the looming recession. Is there any any factors going into that number or just ra- picked a random number? Uh, well, I mean, when I 
when I posted the investor letter, it was like, it was just hovering below 17,000. So, I mean, okay. thinking about like a third, over 30 ish percent haircut. What is that? It's like 4,000. Yeah. Over 30 ish percent haircuts, like 32, 33%. It's like, that seems meaningful in a year, you know, especially since it's been kind of like flat for a bit, you know? I think for then uh, we're running up on time, so maybe we can close it out after this. But I think for crypto enthusiasts, it isn't necessarily the magnitude of the drawdown that impacts them as much as this, like the duration of the drawdown. Like if if it's just like the slow grind down for two or three years, I imagine it's going to deter a lot more investors than just like a sharp decline. Or do you think I'm, I'm wrong on that? No, I like I, th- I like that take. is It's all about enthusiasm. So, so just yeah, boredom, so maybe just like it's yeah, just. It's, I mean, it's it's so it's impossible. You can only buy the dip for so long. It's yeah. It's it's hard to. I think enthusiasm is a big thing, right? Yeah, Silvergate Capital, which I think is like a crypto bank. I don't know a whole lot about them. Apparently, they. Are in trouble today, down like thirty some percent pre market. In in one quarter, they were FTX's. FTX was their customer. In one quarter, they lost. Or they went from twelve billion dollars in customer deposits to four billion. So a little bit of a run on the bank there. All right, this is. Uh, it's been an hour, so let's uh, close this thing out. Someone asked, "What is your schedule for this live chit chat show?" Um, Four o'clock pacific time on thursday so seven o'clock eastern time we do it live on youtube and then we publish the episode um via basically a podcast recording on our podcast channel on wherever you get your podcasts on sundays so if you want to listen to it that way you can listen there as well but we love getting questions so we got plenty today thanks for everyone for throwing stuff in the chat appreciate it appreciate it let's throw a disclosure on this uh Brett and I are not financial advisors. Anything we say or discuss, and I'll throw Paul in this as well. Anything we say or discuss, it's not financial advice or recommendation. Uh, Brett and I are general partners at Arch Capital, though, so clients may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Thank you all for listening. 